Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our pick of this week's stories to tickle your taste buds. I'm Lane Green, The Economist's language columnist, and on your menu today, the American humorist David Sedaris on the beauty of eavesdropping, how alternative milks are churning up the dairy industry, and just how valuable is your accent. But we start with our cover, which this week showed a group of men fighting a blazing wildfire. The Northern Hemisphere is halfway through this long, hot summer, and it is smoldering. One of 18 wildfires sweeping through California, among the worst in the state's history, is generating such heat that it created its own weather. Fires that raged through a coastal area near Athens last week killed 91. Such calamities, once considered freakish, are now commonplace. An early analysis has found that this sweltering European summer would have been less than half as likely were it not for human-induced global warming. Three years on from the sunny optimism of the Paris Agreement, the forecast is bleak. Greenhouse gas emissions are up again. So are investments in oil and gas. In 2017, for the first time in four years, demand for coal rose. Subsidies for renewables, such as wind and solar power, are dwindling in many places, and investment has stalled. Climate-friendly nuclear power is expensive and unpopular. We argue that these are not temporary setbacks. In fact, mankind is losing the war against climate change. One reason is soaring energy demand, especially in developing Asia. Even as green fund managers threaten to pull back from oil companies, State-owned behemoths in the Middle East and Russia see Asian demand as a compelling reason to invest. Powerful lobbies and the voters who back them entrench coal in the energy mix. The outlook? Climate apathy is going to be hard to shake. The world is not short of ideas to realise the Paris goal. Around 70 countries or regions responsible for one-fifth of all emissions now price carbon. Technologists beaver away on sturdier grids, zero-carbon steel, even carbon-negative cement. Perhaps global warming will help them fire up the collective will. Sadly, the world looks poised to get a lot hotter first. To find out more about how to wean countries off their coal addiction, pick up a copy of this week's Economist. And if you haven't already, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Among more modest efforts to lower their carbon footprint, many people are trying to reduce their consumption of dairy. And the alt milk industry is turning into a cash cow, as a piece in our business section explained. The humble oat doesn't exactly ooze Instagrammable cool, yet it is fast becoming the star in trendy coffee shops, 
favoured by baristas as their faux milk of choice thanks to its mouthfeel taste and ability to foam and be swirled into latte art. The oat has emerged victorious from a crowded field of milkable plants. As consumers separate the wheat from the chaff, soya, the original alt milk, has been losing market share. Experiments with peas, pecans and flax all had their problems. Almond milk, an established favourite in America, suffered when its environmental credentials were questioned. One almond requires five litres of water to produce. In late 2017, Britain even suffered an oat milk drought. But is it just a fad? The dairy industry certainly hopes so. Last year, the European Court of Justice ruled in its favour and forbade the use of terms such as milk and butter for plant-based products, which now call themselves drinks. Producers in America want the same. In July, Scott Gottlieb, head of the Food and Drug Administration, said the agency would clarify what could be marketed as milk, adding that an almond doesn't lactate, I'll confess. Whatever you put in your coffee, many of you will now be well used to paying for it with a contactless card or even mobile wallet. But what if you could pay with a simple wave of your hand? A correspondent for our Europe section visited Sweden, home to the largest number of microchipped people in the world. On some Swedish trains, passengers carry their e-tickets in their hands. Literally. About 3,000 Swedes have opted to insert grain-of-rice-sized microchips beneath the skin between their thumbs and index fingers. The chips, which cost around $150, can hold personal details, credit card numbers and medical records. No more danger of losing your wallet then. So far, so convenient. But being chipped has its downsides. RFID chips do not have GPS, but they leave a digital trail when they interact with doors, printers or turnstiles. Few shops recognise chip implants yet. Even those organisations that do have had teething troubles. When Swedish rail officials began scanning passengers' microchips, they saw LinkedIn profiles rather than evidence of ticket purchases. For some cyborgs, it's more about cutting a digital dash. Chip enthusiasts include followers of a transhumanist ideology that seeks to optimise human bodies with technology. Elon Musk, an American entrepreneur, has invested in tech that merges machines with human brains. Some Christians, meanwhile, fear that microchips are marks of the beast foretold in the Bible. Time to tune in to the best of the week in Economist Radio now. The Canadian high street is changing, with new shops and cafes popping up ready for the legalization of recreational cannabis in October. But the patchwork of different laws between provinces is going to lead to some rather different retail experiences. Our Canada correspondent, Madeline Drowen, came on the week ahead to tell us more. And you can imagine, when you get a, a marijuana shop designed by government, it's a bit all over the map because they're very conflicted. They don't really want to encourage people to smoke pot. But by the same token, if those sales are going to take place, they want the money. And so you end up with this sort of institutional-looking shop with a few added touches. It's a bit like your grandmother trying to look cool. Our latest guest on The Economist Asks, our chat show, was the American humorist David Sedaris. The conversation ranged pretty widely, from his penchant for sequined culottes to an attempt to feed his own tumor to a turtle. After 30 years of making America laugh, where does he get his material? Any kind of craziness, I'll go stand near or... Oh, no, nothing's more exciting to me. I remember my boyfriend and I were in a restaurant. And we had a fight in a restaurant. And 
And I told him beforehand, I said, I don't want you to come with me. Like, I'm mad at you right now. Just let me go alone. But instead, he came with me, and we had a fight in a restaurant. And there was a guy, a single person behind us at the table behind us. And I thought, that's what I live for. You know, you're going to go out to eat, and you're going to have be privy to a couple fighting. And in our science and tech show, Babbage, we return to one of our favorite subjects, driverless cars. Test vehicles are zooming around more cities every year, but some embarrassingly mundane obstacles can still bring them to a standstill. Tom Standage, our deputy editor, told Babbage about Drive.ai, a firm taking driverless cars back to basics. One of the tricks of AI has always been if you can't build a system that can solve a complicated problem, simplify the problem. There's a lovely example of how they've done that here. Roadworks are a notorious problem for self-driving vehicles. Roadworks are changing every day, every night. You know, it's a, it's a nightmare. So that's one of the things that's really difficult for these vehicles. So how are they dealing with that in Frisco with Drive AI? It's really simple. They have the city tell them every day where the roadworks are, and then they don't go to those roads. They just drive around them. This sort of thing is how you, how you solve these problems. Now, you might look at all of this and say, this is cheating. But I would look at this and say, this is engineering. And finally, for my Johnson column on language this week, I headed to the cinema. Two big new films of the summer feature race, voice, and the telephone in America. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? In Spike Lee's Black Klansman, based on a true story, a black policeman successfully putting on his whitest-sounding voice convinces a Ku Klux Klansman he is a supporter. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. And in Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, the down-on-his-luck young black protagonist, Cassius Green, Lakeith Stanfield, takes a job in telemarketing. A wise old black colleague, played by Danny Glover, tells him... Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Thank this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. Cassius learns his own white voice, played by David Cross, a white comedian, and soon he is on a rocket ride to success. The point is, what you sound like matters. Take this ongoing study by Kelly Wright a graduate student at the University of Michigan. Ms. Wright is the daughter of a German mother and an African-American Cherokee father, was raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, and has a native command of black, standard American and southern white accents. Speaking in her black accent, she was judged to be more difficult and poor than when she used the other two. The white accent was considered the most pleasant, educated, attractive, confident, trustworthy and rich. When she used her white voice, estate agents were more likely to offer her houses in white and prosperous neighborhoods. A house in a good area is a ticket to a good school, which allows your children to mix with the right sort of people and thus acquire the right accent so that the virtuous cycle continues. All of this, of course, works the other way around too. There are two ways of looking at this problem. One is to expect everyone to learn the most mainstream, least noticeable accent. An alternative is for people to stop judging each other on the basis of their voices. People can be inarticulate in standard accents or eloquent in looked-down-upon minority ones. Accent prejudice isn't just wrong, it's irrational. That's your lot for this week's Tasting Menu. But as ever, you can find more on all these and other stories at Economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you like what we do or you have a suggestion for how we could do it even better, Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. 
I'm Lane Green. In London, this is The Economist.